Previously on the Florida Files. What happened? I think his mind snapped. They were deranged. I mean, they were, they had decided, I guess, apparently what they were going to do if they were ever confronted. Columbus, Ohio detectives are looking through Maddox's effects, searching for a link into the murder of his first wife, Patricia. investigator calls William Russell Maddox and Michael Lee Platt a modern version of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They are the two daring robbers who, when confronted by FBI agents on a suburban street in Miami, come out shooting, turning a neighborhood into a battlefield in broad daylight on a sunny April morning. Some say it sounded like firecrackers or a scene out of Miami Vice, a loud popping sound that lasted for 10 to 15 minutes. After two FBI agents are killed, five others wounded, three seriously, and two never-say-die killers are finally struck down after a lengthy gunfight, the dust settles. Well, sort of. Stunned is how police describe their findings when they learn that these two suburban family men are behind almost a dozen robberies of banks and armored cars, attempted murders. They've even killed one man, leaving him dead in the Everglades after stealing his car to use in their heists. Before everything comes to a screeching halt, police spend 18 months trying to figure it all out. The FBI is involved because of the bank robberies, Miami-Dade police are investigating the stolen cars and the killing of one man and the attempted murder of another. Is this gang-related? Are they targeting banks to get cash to fund terrorist groups? Is it some extremist plot? Miami-Dade Detective Sergeant Tony Monheim says it did, at the time, seem highly likely. I did a robbery for 10 years at that time and worked a lot of armored car robberies and bank robberies, and it was very unusual for armored car robbers to rob banks and vice versa. So we thought there had to be some more people in the group other than the two. I read in one of the news articles where you said that maybe they were affiliated with some kind of more extremist group. And we did think that because uh, historically, if, if, if you look back with the Black Panthers and uh, groups out in... Um, that Bill Ayers was part of, and uh, the Weathermen. The Weathermen were historically uh, into robbing banks and, and uh, obtaining money for their causes in that, in that fashion. So we, we uh, kind of knocked that around a little bit, too, that maybe they were uh, funding some type of cause because it was so frequent, and the amount of money that they were um, obtaining was... Quite a bit. They were getting quite a bit of uh, money from each of these these hits. Miami is the home of cocaine cowboys. People shot on city streets. Body counts daily for drug deals gone bad. I asked Miami Sergeant David Rivers about how unusual this raging gunfight was at a time in Miami when it seemed commonplace. Well, that's what kind of was going on in the 80s in Miami. So this was bank robbery, but in the midst of that, Miami was kind of crazy then anyway. Well, you ain't telling me nothing. I was in homicide in 74, 75, and I came back in 80 and stayed till 98. 
So I was there for it. <laughs> what was it like in the, the 80s, like that the, that time period? Because this kind of put a blip in it, but that wasn't really what was getting all the coverage. No, no. And, and this, what made this a blip was the fact that it involved a federal agency and it was the biggest shooting they'd had. And there was a lot of national interest in the thing. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of the FBI Sunnyland Miami shootout, the bloodiest day in FBI history. Nope, these guys aren't part of a gang or part of a Colombian cartel or working to funnel money anywhere except to put in their own pockets. But the two men have passed. Passed that if they had been looked into earlier, may have prevented the April 11, 1986 tragedy. Trouble is, no one ever much bothered to look at it. Police say Michael Platt and William Maddox were best friends and that they were driving a stolen car during today's shootout that was used in at least one bank robbery. The robberies they committed in the um, shootings in the Everglades were very brutal, very cold-blooded. In the instance where the guard was shot at the bank, um, he was shot once with a shotgun and was laying over some type of rack and uh, one of the subjects came up and shot him twice with a uh, military type, either AR-15 or M-16. Platt was married and the father of three children. His wife told police she knew nothing of his criminal activity, that in fact tonight he was to review his children's report cards. In North Miami, Peggy Lewis, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. From as far as anyone can tell, William Russell Maddox is a nice guy, military veteran, who finds Jesus and becomes a born-again Christian. After he moves to Florida, Maddox joins the congregation at Riverside Baptist Church in Kendall. They welcome him with open arms. During a Sunday sermon, he speaks to the congregation about what he left behind in Ohio after his wife Patty is brutally murdered along with her co-worker Joyce McFadden in a Columbus hospital. He blows out a lighted candle on the pulpit to make his point. Riverside Baptist records his speech. I used to drown in my own pity. I'd look up there and I'd say, God, what, what have I done to you, buddy, to deserve this? You take my wife from me. And then uh, one day it, it came to me, hey, God didn't come down here and stab her 16 times and cut her throat. God didn't do that, some bozo did, did that. And if I'm here tomorrow, praise the Lord. But if I'm not, I know where I'm gonna be. I'm going to be right up there with my wife and my father. Now, you see that candle? You see that? Now, it's not going to relight. The way that candle was blown out, her life was snuffed out just like that. So, like I said, you just never know. One day you're here, and the next day you're gone. After Maddox is identified as half of a dastardly duo of cold-blooded killing bank robbers, People who knew him at Riverside Baptist tell police that there was something odd about Maddox. They now think that Maddox's devoted front was a way to pick up women. 
and that he used the church the way some men used a singles bar. That his portrayal of the grieving widower left with a small baby was just another facade. Investigators talked to women who knew him from the church, who say Maddox was proposing to them after only a few dates. He has a short engagement to one woman who ends up not going through with the marriage. But Christy Lou Horn does go through with it. She meets Maddox at a church volleyball game. He woos her and she falls for him. Within weeks of their meeting, Christy discovers she's pregnant. Deeply religious, she prays to God. If there is some reason for me to have this baby the first time I went to bed with a man, there must be some reason. You want this child here, she's quoted as saying in a People magazine article about the Miami shootout in 1986. Maddox insists they marry, and she agrees. They wed in May 1985, but within two weeks of their marriage, Christy says Dr. Jekyll has turned into Mr. Hyde. She calls him a monster. After she learns of his killing, she tells a newspaper that she doesn't much grieve for her dead husband. Not wanting her face to be seen on camera, she agrees to an interview on April 17, 1986, with Eyewitness News 10's Susan Candiotti. She's seen in a dark silhouette. Dumbfounded is how Christy Maddox describes it. There is still a lot of shock. Finding out her estranged husband, William Maddox, apparently led a Jekyll and Hyde life. Only now is she piecing together secret clues among her family. It's like we each saw one, port, one little piece of a puzzle. And we each, by itself, it was insignificant. It could have been something anybody would have done. But when I took my piece, with his sister's piece, with the housekeeper's piece, with his parents, and when you start putting them all down on the table, they've made a picture. Maddox, along with Michael Lee Platt, involved in the worst bloodbath in FBI history, killing two agents, wounding five others in a quiet Kendall suburb. Christy Maddox had not lived with her husband since last fall, when a series of violent armored car heists and bank robberies began. When she left him, pregnant with their child, they had only been married about three months and knew each other just as long when they wed, having met at a church volleyball game. Despite strong religious convictions, she says problems at work and home forced the split. Now she figures a greater force was involved. God took me out of a situation when I didn't even understand why I had left, quite honestly. It's not something I would have normally done. His second wife, Christy, now wonders if FBI agents saved her from a similar fate. In Southwest Dade, Susan Candiotti, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. I track down Christy and call her to see if she's willing to meet and talk about her short marriage to Bill Maddox. She tells me that the same still holds true now as it did then, that she has done everything she can to protect her son, born shortly after she left Maddox. Then she hangs up. I try to find Melissa, the daughter that Maddox had with wife Patty. Melissa was only three months old when Patty was murdered. I locate an obituary from Jacksonville, Florida Memory Gardens that Melissa Lynn Missy Maddox passed away on October 5th, 2009, a day before her 27th birthday, that she loved cooking and the culinary arts and had been employed by Ruby Tuesday's restaurants. Her dead father, Bill, had a knack and interest in cooking, too. After service in Korea, he had gone to chef school in New York. The other half of the murderous pair, Platt, remarries too after the suicide of his first wife, Regina. 
Residents living in the Hammocks neighborhood where the second suspect, Michael Platt, lived with his wife and three children, refused to talk about him at all. But Detective Tony Monheim says Platt's family couldn't believe he had a secret life of crime. Considered him a family man. Um, they didn't consider him to be uh, the type of person that could be involved in activities such as this. In fact, his brother, when he was told that he was dead, assumed that he had gotten hurt on the job by falling out of a tree or some kind of injury. They were all very shocked, naturally. They considered this completely out of character. In Miami, Vicki Frazier, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. Monheim tells me about arriving at the house to notify Platt's second wife. I recall that when um, we did the death notification at Platt's house and I informed his wife, I think I believe her name was Linda, what had happened, and I told you how stunned she was that she appeared um, like she had no knowledge of anything that was going on at all. As uh, we started to search the house, we, had, we asked permission to search the house, and she said that would be fine. She was actually sitting on the floor crying because she was just stunned that the news we had just brought her. She couldn't believe it. And I recall uh, we searched looking for guns is primarily what we were looking for. And as we searched the closet, I found some trophies, huge trophies from beauty pageants. And uh, I asked her if those were hers, and she said that they were. She was a very pretty girl. And she said that she had uh, been in all kinds of beauty pageants when she was younger. And uh, that uh, since she married Michael Platt, she hadn't uh, involved herself in any of those. Did you find guns in the house? No guns, nothing. We didn't find a thing. There are questions that re-emerge about Platt's first wife, Regina, and her death by suicide in December of 1984, Christmas Eve in Miami. Maddox's wife dies in December, too, after the horrific stabbing in the hospital cancer lab. She's murdered the day before New Year's Eve, December 30th, 1983, a year before Regina's death. Columbus, Ohio-based crime writer David Myers has investigated the death of Patty Maddox extensively, but he also followed the trail of blood to Miami. That the investigating officer on the, the suicide of, of Michael Platt's wife did believe that she was murdered. Right. And that he was overridden by his supervisor. Hmm. And that, you know, he, he then got moved to, to work at the airport or something. I mean, he got... So they definitely believe. And, and the fact that when it occurred, you know, that uh, Maddox was present. He was supposedly in the next room when she committed suicide. And that, you know, they believed uh, very much that... Uh, Maddox and uh, Platt were kind of sharing this woman. And in fact, it, um, the, the, it was uh, suggested that, you know, Platt said it was, uh, she killed herself because it was, um, she felt guilty because she had had an affair with Maddox. But uh, police in Columbus believe that, you no, know, they were actually 
sharing this woman, and that's probably what drove her to commit suicide. Miami Sergeant David Rivers says the case was reopened after the discoveries of Platt and Maddox's criminal dealings, but that as quickly as it was reopened, all the facts pointed to Regina Platt taking her own life. Believe it or not, uh, my squad handled the original suicide, and so when this happened, obviously, Danny Bregler handled originally, and uh, when this happened, of course, we reopened the suicide, and uh, no, no, it was it was still a suicide. She had no no toxicology. No, in fact, I still got the reports from that. Uh, she had no no drugs in her brain. She had no marks on her where she was uh, tied up or anything like this. And she put the shotgun in her mouth, and the shotgun uh, there was no marks on her teeth or her lips, where somebody tried to shove it in her mouth. And then later, in one of the interviews with uh, Platt's old Platt's girlfriend. Uh, she she told us that he was actually upset that she killed herself because he was going to kill her. Did so, we ever no, figure was, out why was, she killed herself? Well, I I I have a non non verifiable theory, but when Maddox came down to Miami uh, after his wife was murdered up there by Platt, uh, he was having an affair with her with Platt's permission, and you know maybe it's just too much for her, so she killed herself. With so many stories and the tragic loss of two special agents, FBI heroes that emerge, and killers with mysterious pasts, the script of the FBI Sunnyland shootout couldn't have been better for a made-for-TV movie. And Hollywood responds to the call. from Miami Federal again. Get the armored car. They'll never expect us back so soon. Hell, I don't know. I'd just soon go inside and nail a teller. Those bozos in the armored car can shoot back. So what? In the Line of Duty, The FBI Murders airs on NBC on November 27, 1988. It stars famous Family Ties actor Michael Gross as Maddox and heartthrob David Soule as Platt. Special Agent Ed Morales tells me that the filmmakers took more than a few dramatic liberties. It was my character, you know, but the character was wearing red spandex pants, you know. <laughs> Did you ever own a pair of red spandex pants? No. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny, you know, so. Did they come and interview you for that movie? Nah, no, no. They did not interview any, any of us. They, they took our our statements from the uh, the case file, and that's what they used. Hollywood doesn't come to Miami either. The movie is shot in Tampa, Florida. More documentary than a fictional account is Firefight, part of the FBI Files TV series that airs on March 26, 2000, on the Discovery Channel. The FBI investigation revealed that both of the killers had served in the military. Platt had been a ranger, a member of the Army's elite first strike force, which explained the pair's commando tactics, fundamentally different than training received by law enforcement. We don't have an acceptable body count in civilian law enforcement. We're taught one way, and that's defensive type shooting. You take cover, you do not take casualties. And uh, then you look at the way Platt reacted that day. 
he reacted in a military fashion. He had the heavier weapon. He had the Mini-14 with a 30-round capacity. Uh, his back was basically against the wall. He had no place to go, so he advanced forward on our position, laying down suppression fire, and ambushed Grogan and Dove, who were behind the car. David Culver, Maddox's former friend and pastor, says the reenactments left an impact. I remember, I wasn't sure I wanted to watch it or not, you know. But then I did, because I, I wondered if they would, how accurate they would be, you know. Because, you know, I, I knew what happened. And even though I was not down in Florida when all that took place, but I knew what happened up to that point, and I knew the, the sadness and the, the agony of all that. For the most part, for the most part, it was pretty good. But I could only watch it once, and that was that was pretty painful. I mean, just watching it, and uh, it was it was very uh, very painful to watch that. reality of what happened on that residential street has far-reaching implications. It plays an important part in the formation of what is now Pinecrest, but in 1986, what was on the books as an unincorporated region of Miami-Dade County. Councilman and former Vice Mayor James E. McDonald. incorporated in 1996, but it was a process that took a number of years beginning from the uh, early 90s. And while I can't say, because I wasn't part of that incorporation group, but when it comes to our community with what happened on 82nd Avenue, there's no question in my mind that that was just part of the overall building blocks of, of wh why we wanted to incorporate. And, and as I say, the primary motivation was we wanted better law enforcement here, we want our own police force. And having our own local police force was an extremely important thing for the people of Pinecrest back in the 90s when we decided, when we voted on incorporating. There have been markers and plaques placed and memorials held to commemorate milestones, like the 30th anniversary in this story by then Channel 10 reporter, Rad Berkey. Rarely had there been anything like it. 136 shots were fired in the space of just minutes as FBI agents tried to stop a car carrying two bank robbers who were heavily armed. When it was over, agents Jerry Dove, a bright young rookie, and Ben Grogan, a streetwise veteran, were dead. Five other agents were wounded in the gun battle that took place along Southwest 82nd Avenue in what is now Pinecrest. Three of the agents who were wounded that morning came back for a ceremony to honor them at the FBI's North Miami Beach office. Lives were forever changed that day, and we must never forget their bravery and the bravery of the other agents who stood by them. The agents who were there and who still carry their wounds will never forget the shootout. I'm glad I was there. Of course, I can say that from an upright position. I'm glad we all did what we were supposed to do, and, uh, and we killed them. 
Because of what happened here, FBI agents now carry 9mm semi-automatic handguns. Because on that morning here 20 years ago, they had to fight back using only six-shot revolvers. He was shooting at me, but I was continuing to fire my six rounds. But the problem was we were carrying revolvers at the time. So I, you know, that was the whole issue. I was having to go back to reload, which took me out of the fight for a while. Ed Morales' arm was shattered by a bullet. With his remaining good arm, though, he was still able to stand, fire, and finally kill the two gunmen. But he says the real heroes that day were Grogan and Dove. I was just helping them, you know, uh, in the fight. The fact that I was the last man standing, you know, it just happened to be uh, ch chance is what it was. of the FBI's training video, Special Agent Wade Jackson has a question for the agents who survived the bloodiest day in FBI history on April 11, 1986. Ed Morales has this to say. If we can leave the people who will view this presentation with a parting message based on the experiences you had on April 11, what would that message be? I think the will to survive basically just says it all. As I was reminiscing about the incident, I was reminded of a part of a poem by Dylan Thomas. It's a poem about dying, and it goes, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. That poem had some impact on me as a young man, and I guess that you could say that I was raging against the dying of the light on April 11th. And for me, he has parting words when asked what April 11th means to him each year. Well, you know, we, we do exchange phone calls on the day, you know, so uh, just kind of keep the keep the memory going. And, you know, we, uh, we chit-chat and are always reminisce about Ben, Jerry, and Gordon, and Rod, you know, so at some point in time in the future, you know, there's only going to be one, one last man standing, you know, so whoever that is, you know, that, that he'll be the, the last... Uh, living memory, you know, of, of the event. Michelle Solomon for season four of The Florida Files, coming soon. Get more of the story and online extras, including archive video and photos at local10.com. Are you a fan of The Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review, 
on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.